0: What does a Prussian general, a product of the Enlightenment, have in common with a Greek commander who studied under Aristotle? More important, how does that continue to affect warfare in the 21st century? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, and, at one time anyway, instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace. In the last episode, I described the impact of Alexander the Great on warfare and how he introduced the concept of independent subordinate commanders, I also said that this concept would not be embraced again for two millennia after his death. Unless this is your first time listening to me, you know I like to refer to Karl von Clausewitz, or Uncle Karl, as he's called in the Army War College. Like a tree falling in the woods, a philosopher or theoretician only makes a meaningful sound if there's someone to hear. For the philosopher, it's not just hearing, but applying the lessons to change behavior, not just for the student, but for generations that follow. For example, we would have never heard of Socrates without Plato. Clausewitz may also have remained obscure if it were not for one of his pupils who went on and applied what he learned in the Prussian War College to transform how armed forces fight wars to this day and in so doing change the face of Europe. Helmut Karl Bernhard von Moltke transferred from the Danish to the Prussian army as a second lieutenant in 1822. His intellectual gifts were quickly recognized and in the following year he began studies at the Prussian war college, the Kriegsakademie, where Karl von Clausewitz was the director. Although regarded as brilliant by his superiors, including Prince William, the future Kaiser Wilhelm I, von Moltke was not assigned to leadership positions but instead assigned to the general staff. Like Alexander, he spent this time in education. During his service as a staff officer, he became fluent in several languages, including English, and was a published author on various military and non-military subjects, including fiction. He traveled extensively, writing travelogues about his experiences touring Eastern Europe and the Balkans. His only combat experience came about as a result of these tours. After meeting the Sultan on vacation to Turkey, von Moltke was seconded to the Turkish army. At one point, During a war between Turkey and Egypt, Moltke took command of the Turkish artillery. His interests and influence, however, were on how to win wars, not winning battles. Von Moltke became fascinated with the nascent railroads and served on the board of the Berlin to Hamburg Railway. In the mid-1850s, he envisioned using telegraph to distribute orders and mobilize troops and using the railways to bring them to the front. Using his influence in the general staff and with the German railways, he set about reorganizing the army, the railways, and the telegraph lines to make that vision possible. Von Moltke's reputation grew, and he was assigned as aide-de-camp to crown Prince Frederick, who was later Emperor Frederick III. In 1857 he was named Chief of the Prussian General Staff. If railways and telegraphs brought the Prussian army into the 19th century, What von Moltke did next transformed warfare to this present day. These changes included reorganizing the general staff to be regionally focused and develop contingency plans for war in each region or simultaneous regions. This included wargaming these plans and developing precise schedules for mobilization and deployment, maximizing the capabilities of the Prussian telegraph system and rail network. A contemporary would write that von Moltke never made an important decision without consulting the German railway timetables. This is the genesis of the time phase deployment plans used in contingency planning today. These plans were tested through mobilization and deployment exercises. The Reforger and Able Archer exercises of the Cold War were descendants of these drills. Von Moltke added general staff sections on military history, geospatial analysis, and transportation. Taking to heart Clausewitz's emphasis on the primacy of policy in war, von Moltke required his staff officers to study national and international politics and policy. He instituted staff rides taking officers over historical battlefields, giving them an appreciation for terrain and the decisions made by previous commanders. This continues as an essential part of leader training in the U.S. and other armies today. Von Moltke also changed Prussian army doctrine in the field, implementing ideas in Clausewitz's theory and setting the groundwork for modern maneuver warfare. Rather than the formulaic prescriptions of Jomini, whose military theories dominated military thought at the time, von Moltke promoted the ideas of flexibility and initiative, This brought to life the concept of Auftragstaktik, or broad mission orders, which were first introduced by Gneisenau, who was Prussian chief of staff, while von Moltke was a student at the Kriegsakademie. Under this concept, detailed planning was necessary up until contact with the enemy main body. After that, commanders were expected to exercise individual initiative, guided by the superior commander's intent. This idea is reflected in von Moltke's famous saying that, quote, no plan survives intact, first contact with the enemy's main forces, unquote. This is often misquoted as, quote, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, unquote. Now, that can lead to an interpretation that's completely opposite from von Moltke's intent. As a personal note, I always emphasize to my officers that if you don't have a plan, you don't have anything to deviate from. Under von Moltke's reforms, divisions and corps would operate independently and to a much greater degree than had been seen before. At that time, armies followed the example of Napoleonic warfare. Individual corps may march along separate routes to get to the battlefield, but would then unite for the main battle, even though the collected army was now so large that one commander could not personally see the whole picture. Cavalry units were allowed to operate independently, out of the direct control of the overall commander, but that was the nature of their reconnaissance mission, and it enabled raids. One reason this was allowed was that reconnaissance and raids were not decisive action. They enabled decisive action by that main body. In this way, cavalry and other light forces were not used that differently than the cavalry of Xerxes of Persia or Philip of Macedon. Gettysburg and many of the other battles of the American Civil War are examples of this. Chancellorsville was the great exception. Lee's two wings did maneuver separately in a hammer-and-anvil method. This, however, depended upon Lee's absolute trust and confidence in Jackson, a relationship that did not exist anywhere else in either army. The challenge was how to institutionalize that kind of personal trust and enable that flexibility and initiative. Von Moltke's solution was to provide each Prussian division with its own general staff, filled by graduates of the Kriegsakademie who had served with one another on the general staff in Berlin. These staff officers could coordinate with one another in different divisions and corps without going through the commander of that unit. This assured a common operating picture among independently maneuvering Army Corps, facilitating the coherent application of decisive force. Now, some commanders may have felt threatened by this staff-officer relationship, but it was officially protected by royal decree. The same principles exist in many armies today, whether officially, as in the German Bundeswehr, or unofficially, as in the halls of the Pentagon among the various chiefs of staff and military assistants. These changes in mobilization, maneuver, mission orders, and staff operations were revolutionary. It had not been seen before. Not even Napoleon used staffs like this or allowed such freedom to his commanders. As you might imagine, there was some resistance to these changes. Many commanders, often selected for family connections rather than ability, were convinced that staff officers in Berlin were not competent to tell them how to change the way they fought a war. The first test would be the war against Denmark in 1864. The plan required deep penetration by independently operating corps to cut off an expected retreat by the Danes into their peninsular and island fortresses. Prussian commanders in the field, as well as Otto von Bismarck, were reluctant to commit themselves to these independent and what they perceived as very risky plans proposed by staff officers sitting in their office in Berlin. This hesitation enabled the Danes to retreat to their fortresses and islands, just as von Moltke cautioned that they would. With that, Moltke left Berlin to take personal direction of the final phase of the campaign. Moltke's successful leadership and firm grasp of operations in the field crushed all resistance to his future orders. In the wars that followed against Austria in 1866 and France in 1870, Prussia did not have significant technological superiority over either opponent. The Prussian breech-loading needle guns were certainly superior to the Austrian muzzle loaders. Austrian use of rails and telegraphy, however, was more advanced than Prussia's, and the Austrians were able to use interior lines. France also had good rail systems, and the French needle gun was superior to the Prussian model. The decisive factors were the reforms made by von Moltke. Both the Austrians and the French were still operating their main battle forces in the Napoleonic way marching separately but coming together for the main battle under the overall direction and control of the field commander. Their general staff systems focused almost exclusively on logistics, getting troops and supplies to the field as needed, when needed, where needed. This is certainly important, but the Prussian general staff also provided operational support with communications among commonly trained staff officers in every division enabling individual initiative while assuring unity of effort in independent operations. Prussian divisions and corps not only moved independently, but they also maneuvered independently, concentrating power on enemy units before they could mass, and often attacking from different directions. Combat power focused on the enemy rather than concentrating it into a large and unwieldy force. This new kind of staff work enabled turning apparent enemy strengths into opportunities for Prussia. For example, the French also used a modern rail system for moving their forces. By examining that rail system, von Moltke could anticipate exactly where the French must send its forces in a war against Germany, with reasonable expectation of the sequence in which the French would deploy. He was, therefore, able to anticipate their operational plans and set the trap at Metz and at Sedan. Von Moltke's reforms changed military operations so much that today it's hard to see how revolutionary they were at that time. Very quickly, almost all armies adopted some of his reforms and sought to emulate the Prussian army in other ways, even as with the United States and British armies, it wasn't much more than adopting the spiked helmet. Contrary to comments by noted Civil War author Bruce Catton and repeated by others, the Prussians also learned from the American Civil War. One thing the German general staff borrowed without modification was General Order 100, Instruction for the Government of the Armies of the United States, known as the Lieber Code. This first effort to codify the laws and customs of war was translated directly into German for the use of the new Imperial German Army. I don't know what they did with Articles 42 and 43 of the Lieber Code, which deals with freeing slaves. To get back on task. Despite attempts to emulate the Prussian system, the concept of independent maneuver and a professional general staff system was slower to catch on. Even in the Imperial German Army, the idea of independent operations of separate corps continued to be viewed with skepticism. 44 years after the German defeat of France in 1870, von Moltke's nephew as chief of staff in 1914 modified the deep penetration of independent corps envisioned for war against France. This change, driven by caution and distrust, may have enabled the miracle of the Marne that stopped the German advance. So, what makes these two commanders, Alexander and von Moltke, similar across two millennia? The answer is strategic vision and strength of will. Both men were not just military commanders. They were classically educated in philosophy and understanding other cultures. Did this make a difference in their leadership? It's impossible to say. Both men, however, understood how to exploit the technology and forces presented to them by their predecessors, using that technology and those forces in new ways. Both built up a common frame of reference with their officers. This enabled them to break with previous forms of warfighting, applying independently operating formations guided by a commonly understood intent rather than directive control. Both successfully integrated other national forces to operate seamlessly with their own. For Alexander, it was the Persian and other Asiatic armies training them to fight the Macedonian way or exploiting their own national capabilities. For von Moltke, it was integrating the disparate capabilities of the other kingdoms of Germany to achieve that unity of effort. Both understood that military strategy must achieve political ends and were successful in achieving those ends. The difference is that Alexander's reforms passed away within a few generations. Von Moltke's reforms define how armed forces continue to operate throughout the world today. From time to time, I will come back to the subject of great commanders and heroes. But for next week, I will return to contemporary manifestations of the ancient art of modern warfare.